Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined once again by Christopher Such. Hello again, Kieran. And together, we'll try to answer the question how do you solve a problem like reading for professional development? But first, Chris, what are you reading for? Well, this week I have been reading a paper that I came across by, I hope I say this right, um, Ben Fatto et al. Effectively, it was a paper all about technology that could be used apparently, and they, they thought to screen for decoding difficulties using eye tracking. And the reason I bring this paper up is partly because it's quite an interesting paper, but also because it highlights something that's really important and something that we're probably going to talk about a bit today, which relates to how can you tell why certain bits of reading are worth doing or how can you tell whether something is worth believing, etc. And it, this paper is a perfectly interesting paper and it does seem to suggest that maybe you can potentially track reading difficulties, specifically decoding difficulties um, using eye tracking software on some level. But if you dig into the paper a little bit, the details behind it strongly suggest that it hasn't been compared in a fair way to other means of working out whether people have decoding difficulties. You only have to read chunks of the paper to really start to recognize that the claims about what it can do made by certain companies are far from the mark. But the main reason why I bring it up is because it reminded me of something that I, or a barrier that I had to go through with certain reading of papers, which is that there are obviously technical details in this paper that all go way over my head. I'm not um, as au fait with the technology as the people describing it, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't mean I can't evaluate their claims. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to make certain claims in a way that are clear, that aren't intentionally abstruse, and that I shouldn't be able to pick apart. So it's it's a really interesting paper for those exact reasons, not because I found it hugely useful, but because of what it reminded me about in terms of how we can, what's the word I'm looking for, scrutinise papers, even if we don't understand every little bit of them. What about you, Kieran? Uh, what have you been reading this week? Nice. Um, yeah, so this week uh, I have been reading Retrieval Practice 2 by Kate Jones. Um, I suppose I should say I was very kindly sent it by the people at John Cat. And I may not be the best person to evaluate the success of the author's aims because I haven't read Retrieval Practice 1. Um, and I'm also pretty familiar with a lot of the source material. But what I really like about it are the contributions showing how they put retrieval practice into action. And a lot of the activities that are shared um, show that retrieval practice can be more than just a quiz. Um, so I think it could be a quite important book for beginning teachers um, or people who are new to the idea of retrieval and long-term memory and all those kind of cog-side things that we're becoming increasingly more familiar with. And um, yeah, so I think it's worth checking out, but like I said, I'm not necessarily qualified to 
just the success of the opposition because they're really hoping to um, create something that didn't trade on the ground of the original um, book, you know, retrieval practice. And I'm not sure it's called one, just retrieval practice. Um, but yeah, I've I've taken quite a few activities from it and really enjoyed the the teacher contributions. You you got people like uh, John Hutchinson and Tom Needham sort of talking about how they've implemented retrieval and sort of ideas into their practice. You know, so I think it, it, it's well worth checking out. And it's I think about 160 pages, so reasonably easy to um to get into. You know, take on. So effectively, your um, enjoyment of it is a bit like me with the Terminator films. Seen Terminator 2, enjoyed it, never seen the first one. <laughs> Not sure why I bring that up, but I, th I like to think of it as a recommendation because Terminator 2 is obviously an excellent film. So let's dive into the main conversation on reading pro for professional development, something that I know both of us value to a great extent. So the first question I'll chuck your way is, how do you start if you're new to the idea of professional reading? How would you get going? So I think it, it, it can be quite intimidating um, because there's so much to read and there's so little time that I think it's almost a case of, you know, there's no point in starting uh, quite often. Be, but I think getting your toe in the water is probably the the best thing you can do you know and i think there are lots of blogs where the authors have a record of robust reading themselves and so like i always recommend harry fletcher wood's blog and craig barton's blog your own blog because they all do some serious legwork meaning that we've got an an entryway into some really serious reading, but in a way that isn't um, burdensome or intimidating. And um, yeah, so my recommendation, you know, initially for getting started is to seek out those gatekeepers and then bit by bit increase how much you are reading and the sort of the variety of sources, you know, so I, I think start with blogs, those, those gatekeepers in particular, and then I think it, it just becomes a self perpetuating motor after that. What about yourself, yeah. Chris? Yeah, I think the great thing about blogs is often you will find that they themselves will recommend books that might spark your interest, but also a fair few of these bloggers are people who will write books themselves. I would say that my key way in was start was reading blogs i found that a really valuable thing to do i would say that the step from blogs to books is quite an important one and the way, and when it happens particularly if you're someone who isn't generally a fan of non-fiction reading i think that first book and taking the time to pick one that you've got a fairly good chance of sparking your interest that you've one that you think, yeah, I, I know that this person is someone who's writing I already appreciate, or it comes highly recommended from people who I respect. That first book, it needs to work. It needs to be something that um, works for you if you're not someone, as I say, who's inclined to reading nonfiction. The way that I, the analogy I'd use is that I'm not someone who 
at first glance, I, I, I've seen a bit of ballet on television. I've seen kind of three or four minutes here or there. It doesn't look like my cup of tea. It doesn't seem like the sort of thing I'd be interested in. So if someone were to try and get me into ballet, or if I was think, thinking to myself, you know what, I want to see if I can enjoy it, see if I can take something from it, I would really ask for some strong recommendations for that first ballet that I saw. Because if that first one was rubbish, given my my bias against it or, so, or my, my general feeling that I'm not going to enjoy it, it needs that first one needs to be a good one. There's a, there's a decent amount of pressure on it. I agree entirely that it's a great idea to dip your toe in the water with blogs. But I think when you come to buy and then invest the time into that first book, I think you want to get some advice on what it is, maybe even go for something that you already know a little bit about so that it's something familiar or go with a writer that you're already familiar with from other from other areas, like I say, from blogs, just so you know it's something that's going to ease you in. I think if that first book is something you don't enjoy and doesn't, it you know, leaves you completely uninspired, it can be quite easy just to then think that professional reading isn't for you. I've spoken to a few people in the past who had a bit of a false start in their professional reading for that sort of reason, because the first thing was just a bit dull. I think I think that's one of the really good things about um, asking people like Shannon and Lloyd what they what they like to read, what what sort of made the big difference for them, because you're almost getting another teacher's experience of that um, of that first book, that first big paper, um, and it's one of the reasons I, I like to ask that question because it's always really interesting because not everyone comes at it from the exactly the same angle, and um, I think right now the teacher writing for other teachers is quite in vogue and I quite like that I quite think I think there's a lot of value I think there's there's also value in academics and and teacher research or education researchers and um, doing a lot of their work and um, but equally I think sometimes what that that sort of career changing book can be something that changes how you behave in the classroom and, and so I hope that continues for quite some time yeah I think that's a, a really good point if you think about the books that seem to be popular on Edu Twitter, the ones that are kind of touchstones, they're often also books that provide an overview of the profession in some way that attempt to say something quite big about the profession. In some cases, these are from teachers, and I agree that that's a really valuable thing. But this idea of saying something a bit grander about teaching, something that tries to talk broadly about the profession. I mean, the ones that jump out to me are things like Daisy Christodoulou's Seven Myths or Daniel Willingham's Why Don't, Why Don't uh, Children Like School? Ones that try and yeah talk about the whole breadth of the profession. It's very difficult not to read something like that and find something that you're interested in. I think it's if you start off with something that's a bit niche, unless it's something that you know you're really interested in, it can be easy to come away thinking, well, I appreciate that this might help a bit, but it it doesn't grab you straight away. I think that first book that you're going to dive into, it's well worth looking for something and having something recommended that talks about the profession more broadly. One thing I'd want to say about those initial bits of reading as well is not to feel pressured in some ways to take something from it. Don't feel pressured to think, oh, this needs to absolutely change my practice or that I need to remember every little bit of this book. 
I wouldn't be afraid with a first book um, that you're reading for professional purposes to be something that you just blast through. Just for want of a better phrase, read it for pleasure. Just swim in it. Don't worry so much about necessarily taking notes and writing things in the margin. There'll be plenty of time for that if you find it really interesting. I think sometimes in the profession, particularly in the last few years, there's been a tendency to accidentally talk about learning in quite two-dimensional terms, to think of learning as recall. If you can't recall something, you full stop haven't learned it. And we know that learning is a lot more complex than that. It's quite often the case that I will blast through an entire book the next day, not or not really to be able to tell you much about it. And then three months later, someone will mention something and I'll go, oh, yeah, I read about that in the uh, third chapter of X, Y and Z. I haven't thought about it since, but et cetera, et cetera. So even though I can't immediately recall it, it doesn't mean it hasn't gone in in some level. It doesn't mean it hasn't enriched my thinking on some level. It hasn't broadened my understanding of something, even if I haven't you know, taken hundreds of notes and put them into a retrieval app and made sure that I can dredge them up. I can still have taken something from it, even if I can't recall every little detail. Nothing wrong with doing that later on if it's a book you love. But yeah, not being afraid just to read and swim in it and not necessarily feel the need to have it change everything in your practice straight away is a good thing. Yeah, sometimes I've read chapters and gone, I didn't understand a word that said. I couldn't tell you what happened, but then in a, in a discussion a couple of months later, <laughs> we'll be piecing it together with other bits that I have read and gone, oh, now it makes sense. And um, yeah, it's, it's a, what, a generative process reading for professional development, would you say? Is that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the generative learning, which is something we can talk about perhaps in more detail at a later date is a fascinating thing. But yeah, it, it tends to be this idea that you need to, select and then organize information and then integrate it into your long-term memory but there's it certainly looks at learning and doesn't assume that it's as a simple process as making something in into a format that you can recall though obviously it doesn't neglect that i don't think i think it's just worth noting really that when it comes to professional reading like all forms of learning there is a gray area between i don't know anything about this and I can recall everything that I've read about this, which, which just as a quick aside, I think is actually part of where we end up with this controversy about the definition of learning from Daniel William Willingham, sorry, which the old learning is a change in long-term memory, which somehow, despite being completely innocuous, has somehow managed to trigger a lot of criticism. When really the only thing that it really says that isn't totally banal is the idea of something being for the longer term. I think it's just the fact that a lot of people have interpreted that as learning is a change that means you can now recall something, which is obviously not as nuanced as we'd like it to be. But of course, that's not what Daniel Willingham said in the first place. But yeah, sorry, got a little bit of an, uh, off track there. The last thing I'd mention about um, engaging with books is if you do decide to go a little bit deeper into them when you first start and you think you know what this book is something I'm really interested in I want to take notes on it etc etc it seems like a mundane thing but I much prefer taking notes with a pencil rather than a highlighter or a pen just being able to put little bits in the margins is a really valuable process but I've also found that 
again, you don't have to read like this. It's just a suggestion. But I sometimes find that reading the first paragraph or two of a chapter and then the last paragraph or two of a chapter before I read the whole thing gives me a very different sense of the book, helps me to, when I want to, recall a little bit more of it. It tends to guide my thinking while I'm reading the chapter, allow me to kind of organise it as I'm going through because I'm able to predict to some extent what this chapter is going to be about and what I should be looking out for. So might not work for everyone, but maybe a little tip there if you are finding that you're enjoying these books and you just want to recall a little bit more of them. Nice. I'm going to try that out. Um, I, I couldn't bring myself to write on a book. I have a, a, a notebook that is attached to the book and it becomes the the reference point for, for my notes. <laughs> um, because I, I like my books to be pristine as much as, much as possible. Perhaps that says quite a lot about my sort of internal cognition, <laughs> internal workings. <laughs> and so you get started, you're reading regularly. How can you trust what you read, Chris? The simple answer and probably the one that's quite frustrating is don't, not entirely anyway. Um, we have a tendency, if I think back to when I first started doing a decent amount of professional reading, I had a tendency to feel betrayed quite often. I'd read something, think I'd got to the bottom of uh, an area, think, it, think I'd found something completely revolutionary that everyone should know about. And then two or three months later, I would find that, oh, actually, maybe it's a little bit more nuanced than that, or there were some bits and pieces that this author, despite the book being really good, had left out, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a tendency when you first start reading, I think, to, to feel betrayed because you end up trusting an author and that can backfire a little bit. But this isn't to say that you should be completely sceptical of all claims. I think the most important thing you can do in terms of learning to find ways to trust what you read is to look for opposing views. A great thing to do when you finish reading a book is to say to people, I've just read this. From this, I've gathered X, Y, and Z. Is this true? Do you agree? If not, what should I read? And that can be a really valuable process. I would say there's also a sense in which when you read, particularly once you've read, you started to read a little bit, there's, for want of a better phrase, the smell test. As soon as something is making grand claims, claims, for example, you think, wow, how have I not heard about this before? Well, then there's a very good chance that those grand claims are largely unsubstantiated. If this is a, something that's making a big claim based on a paper that's from 2015 and you haven't seen anything about it anywhere else, there's probably good reason to be sceptical because if it hasn't made a splash further afield than the, the first few bits that you've read, then there's a fairly good chance that um, it's a little bit more complex than they're letting on. In, in short, when people start making quite bold claims, you really need to be thinking, well, I need convincing evidence of this. I'm going to seek out some alternative points of view and see if they convince me. I would say... Um, the last thing in terms of how you can trust what you read is that coming to a decision on what you believe is most likely to be true is about probabilities. And we're not 
we're not talking in platonic dialogues. We're, we're not having to worry about particular logical fallacies being thrown in our face. There's nothing wrong with thinking that something is quite likely to be true because there is a consensus around it from significant authority figures. This whole idea that, oh, well, that's just an appeal to authority well, yeah, there is that. I agree. That's obviously a logical fallacy to <clears throat> just think something is true because a, there is a consensus of authority figures think, saying that something is what it is. But at the same time, well, that's how we live our day to day lives. I mean, we, we, I, know, I think the earth is spherical, not because I have di- like personally found direct evidence of it. It's just the authority figures and the consensus of those authority figures makes the case. I've picked apart a little bit of the evidence into climate change, and it seems strongly likely that climate change, man-made climate change, is a thing. But largely, the reason why I think it's most likely to be the case that man-made climate change is a thing is because of a consensus position from authority figures. And again, you can point that out as a logical fallacy all you like, but when it comes to finding these personal probabilities of whether something is true or not, in the end, a lot of the time, we do need to be willing to rely on the consensus position of authority figures. What about you? How do you go about finding a way to trust what you read? Um, your example there reminds me of the Always Sunny episode where Mac disproves <laughs> the theory of evolution by setting up them, you know, some of the greatest minds uh, throughout history. And then shows how they were wrong. <laughs> you know, they, I think they did quite a good job of showing that logical fallacy. Um, but obviously, as you say, with a, with a pinch of salt. <laughs> Indeed. Um, um, yeah, how do I trust? Well, yeah, I, I'm 100% with you in terms of education research is particularly murky. Um, you know, it's not the most naturally empirical of fields. Um, but there are ways to avoid, you know, some of the trash that that does get published in in our field and i think the first thing to do is to seek out the peer reviewed and and there are two places i think we start and eric which is the education resources information center and jstor which is i think short for journal storage they will typically you know even if the peer review system isn't perfect it's still better than no peer review at all um, and so when I'm looking for, when I'm looking through Google Scholar or looking through some sort of database, I will always check where they're coming from and whether or not they've been peer reviewed. And I think those two places, if you don't have the time to go and hunt out for the, the credentials of a journal, I think they're good places to start. I think there are three books that for me model the critical processes necessary to navigate through education research and education reading. And and I'm not convinced of the order yet, but the first is Bad Science by Ben Goldecker, because essentially he is in a very accessible way modeling the sort of critical eye approach and sort of taking things with a pinch of salt, checking sources, and and just being really thorough in terms of what you believe. And I think quite a few of his examples might be from the world of education. And, you know, for instance, he takes on Brain Gym in that one. And 
I'd never been more shocked that something could be allowed to exist after his after he dismantled it because it, it seemed so ridiculous. And um, but it's a really good place to start because it's also really accessible and really enjoyable read. And um, the next one is Teacher Proof by Tom Bennett, um, which is along the same lines, but specifically related to education and teaching. And then the third one, and this one I would definitely read the last of the three, just simply because the shift in the type of book it is. And it's Daniel Williams' When Can We Trust the Experts, which does, a, they all do a very similar job. But I think if you started with Ben Goldacre and worked your way towards Dan Willingham, you would be ramping up the expectation on your sort of attention and your awareness of the of the world of research and reading, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I think that's, they are some cracking recommendations there. Just going slight, a little bit of a callback. I mentioned earlier about the how, the brilliance of the sequel, Terminator 2. I loved Ben Goldacre's Bad Science. And for that reason, was really excited to read Bad Pharma. I'm not saying it's a sequel as such, but it felt like um, it, that was the direction. It's it's a good book, but goodness me, does he up the ante in in asking things of you as a as a reader. <laughs> so if you read Bad Science and you think, oh yeah, I'll, I'll go into Bad Pharma as well. This will talk about research in the same engaging way. Then be, be ready for a shock. It is a really difficult book to enjoy, <laughs> but fascinating nonetheless. While we're talking about what we can and can't trust in reading. I think it's really important to note that in the schools that I've seen and I've worked in over the years, I've seen some good decisions. I've seen some not so great decisions, etc. But the very worst decisions I've ever seen, the ones that really jump out at me as being completely beyond the pale, are ones that have been made by people who have done a little bit of reading, a couple of books here or there, They've gone, wow, this is so new and exciting. This is how something should be done. And they've really gone for it. I think there's a slight warning I would make about diving into professional reading, which is that if you're anything like me, it will inspire and it will infuse. But we have to be careful not to then jump off the deep end in implementing stuff until a little bit further down the line once we've had the chance to reflect on it to seek out the things that maybe contradict what we've read always better to seek out a few more opinions before you think about making changes in your school on the basis of professional reading yeah that that, um, that fits really well with my next point which is to check your biases um, and there are far too many biases for us to take control of them all the time. But there are two when it comes to research and, and education reading that I think are particularly prevalent. And I know they're reasonably well known in you know, the edu Twitter sphere, but if anyone's listening and they're new to teaching and, and they're just getting into cognitive science and things, confirmation bias, you know, where we will actively seek out things we agree with and we will, you know, um, you know, it, it will continue, you know, we will say, okay, well, we agree with that and we'll find more things, you know, that, that's probably a really bad example, but essentially noticing things that you already thought and then giving them extra credence when you're reading. 
That's probably that's that's a bit a better way to say. It. And then the the backfire effect, which is when even in the face of robust evidence to the contrary, you will double down on previously held convictions. And I think confirmation bias is the kind of thing that will, you know, motivate you to jump into something, like you said. And I think the backfire effect is the kind of thing that will make you switch off. And I think if we take account of both of those ideas, those two biases, when reasonably under control, even just being aware that they exist and that we may be suffering from them, I think um, I think is a really healthy position, you know, because I think at some point it was evolutionarily advantageous for us to think in this way. But as we, you know, here in 2021, that's not always the case. And so just being aware. And then I think um, part of that is looking for best bets, the language of pragmatism within a paper, you know, like, as you said, sweeping statements is, is a big red flag. And I'll get to red flags in a second. But if we can see that the author is being both diligent and pragmatic, then we can add maybe a little bit more credence to what they say. And then the final thing is watching out for red flags. And I think straw men are quite a big red flag, sweeping generalizations, as you've said, unsubstantiated leaps. Yeah, I think you've covered most of those. But the more you read, the more familiar you become with those types of behaviors. And I think we're all guilty of it. I will quite often make unsubstantiated leaps and then spend a lot of time going back and trying to piece together how that might not be. Um, but I think it's just stuff to be aware of. So in terms of trust, I would seek out the peer-reviewed, check the sources, check the biases, check for best bets, and watch out for red flags. And that is a way of being that develops over many years, not overnight, you know, like anything. Yeah, I think you've summed it up beautifully there. We talked about how an individual on their own can find a way to understand whether what they're reading is trustworthy or not. What on the larger scale, in terms of schools, in terms of school leaders, I'm going to ask you this one. How can you support or encourage other staff to read in schools? In other words, what should schools do if they think that professional reading is a key aspect of developing teachers? That's the million dollar question. Um, because relatively few teachers will have read something pertaining to teaching, you know, beyond practical periodicals in the, in the last 12 months. You know, there's research that says this going back as far as the 70s. Probably the most recent is Rudland and Kemp 2004, Nathanson 2008. Um, and quite often these bits of research about how often teachers read um, for professional development show as few as 25% affirmative responses, you know, so like 75% of the profession or, or at least certainly the sample studied won't have read anything pertaining to the professional development beyond a, a periodical. And I think we need to establish the reading teacher as the new social norm, you know, and at the, at the very least, I think that begins in our schools. And um, I think the first way to do it is to get caught reading. And um, so, for instance, quite often, first thing in the morning, I will read while my computer loads up. I think I might have mentioned this on here before. Um, and sometimes my head teacher will walk in and he'll say, you know, 
you're the only person I can imagine reading it at half past eight in the morning about education research. But the fact is he has seen me in that situation. And so I try to get caught by my colleagues um, in other parts of the school. You know, I, I will do a lot of my reading during the school day um, because it's mutually beneficial. You know, I improve because I'm reading and the school enjoys the sort of the fruits of my labor, so to speak. So I think getting, getting caught reading is the first thing to do, you know, getting caught by those you want to be reading, because then if, if it's a, a normal part of how we behave in school, then I think a lot of the importance, that imbalance gets redressed. You know, it's acceptable to read in school, but also it's a priority too, if that makes sense. You know, when school leaders are reading um, visibly. I think one thing I do all the time is I ask people to read a little bit often. So for instance, Jack Harker has been interviewed. He works with me, he's worked with me for the last four years. And he said, I would love to read. You know, he's, he's one of the most intelligent men I've ever met. And he said, oh, I'd love to read about education, but I just don't have the time. And I said, Jack, start with one page a day. Start with five minutes a day. And within a couple of weeks, he was taking Craig's book, because he started with Craig's book, um, I Wish I Taught Maths. And he was quoting things back to me and said, you said this, Karen, but in the book, it says this. And so I'd almost created a monster where by <laughs> he hit it backfired and I was being challenged but he had initially thought oh, I, I, I can't do this I don't have the time but one page at a time and you never stop at one page you know I think any sort of um, personal improvement or development begins with that first step and um, and so that's what I will say so re read little but read often I think if we're school leaders we need to provide time you know, whether that be at the start of a staff meeting, you know, so at least once a week, you've got 15, 20 minutes. And um, whether that be, you know, at a certain point in the day. And um, like, for instance, I think I think of the primary mathematics. I talk about the 15 minutes between the children leave in a quarter past three and the next job start at half past three. I think that's the perfect time for a book, a drink, you know, it could be hot, could be cold. Um, and then, you, can, you feel sort of a little bit more refreshed and ready for whatever the next task is because it's quite often a staff meeting or some sort of um, preparation for the next day. And I think it's quite healthy to take that time to decant. Um, equally with school leaders, CPD library where possible. Edgy books aren't necessarily the most expensive. You know, some are, you know, some, some tomes are ridiculously expensive, but where you can, use eBay for those that you must have. But a lot of the books that teachers will want to read and will benefit from reading um, will be will be reasonably well-priced. Um, and certainly I know that publishers like John Cat they will do large bulk um, deals for people, you know, and they're not paying me to say that. And then I think the last thing you can do is share blogs and articles that people can dip into. You know, like uh, I know some people have a newsletter that goes out and I'll have a link to the blog that, the, that they think you should read. Sometimes I will send out um, articles pertaining to my CPD the next month so that people have had a time to prime. And then, so they, at least they've had access to, you know, for instance, the, the writing of the Bjorks. Um, if we're doing something on, you know, the, the new theory of disuse, that kind of thing. And um, so, yeah, I think get caught reading, read little but often, provide time, CPD libraries. I've got lots of bullet points tonight, Chris, and share blogs and articles where accessible. But it, it's because I feel so passionately about this subject and, and feel that this is something that should be the social norm. And it, you know, it, it really grates on me that it's not. You know, I think 
the reading teacher should be the default. And it really, it gives me a lot of hope that so many engaging with us on social media and talking about how they really want to get involved in this, because um, I, th I think it's of the utmost importance for the, both the profession and for us as, as, as teachers, you know, the respect we have in our, in our craft. Over to you, Chris. Yeah, I, I have a lot of sympathy, I admit, for the teachers who get quite aggravated online when you say when people say things like oh you should be reading reading so important and you can see some quite vitriolic defensive reactions which are like i'm not going to read i don't read I, this isn't i i just learn in the classroom etc etc and i understand where that comes from because if you're a teacher and you're working 55 hours a week or 50 hours a week and you're marking books till late in the evening and then someone says you're not doing the job you could be doing if you were doing this extra bit for an hour or two hours or three hours a week. It just seems unjust. So I think the first port of call has to be schools ruthlessly stripping out those things that don't seem to have that much of an impact or even do have a small impact, but not a worthwhile enough impact to justify the amount of time that goes into them. Some of the marking practices that you see in schools are often very difficult to justify in terms of the time invested in them, for example. So I think if you're a school leader and you want teachers to read and they're already working, say, past 45 hours a week, then then recommending them a book while not making any time for them to actually read those books is you're not really getting to the root of the problem. So I would say that, but I'm a, you know that I'm a bit of a staunch advocate of the 45 hour week for teachers. This is a profession that should allow people to have a family and have decent family time. And while we're not protecting that kind of average 45 hour week, I don't think we're doing that. Um, so making sure workload allows for it would be my the most important aspect and you've obviously already stated that i just wanted to kind of re-emphasize that you mentioned it being part of cpd i think a key part of that is what comes next so you you talked about introducing a paper or a bit of reading generally that preceded some uh, professional development um, activity or presentation that you were going to do with the staff which is great I think that is exactly what you need to do. There are sometimes circumstances, of course, where it isn't going to, a piece of reading isn't going to be followed up by a bespoke bit of professional development, but still having the opportunity to talk about a given paper or a given book is a really good way to go. I think sometimes being willing to, over the space of a few years, say, oh, this year, we're going to invest in this book and all members of this department. This is maybe more a secondary thing, perhaps. I know that's going beyond the remit of the title of this podcast, but so I'm going to go with it anyway, where everyone in the department will buy a book and they'll read a chapter for what as part of their staff meeting every month. And then they'll come back and discuss it at a later date. And then through the year, they'll read the book. And then a following year, they'll read other stuff. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a great deal of reading if you're just reading a book, but if it's a well-chosen book, a lot of people will read that and then dive into the papers that lead from that. They will search out the opinions that perhaps contradict it, et cetera, et cetera. So getting the same book for everyone across a group of staff can be a good way to spark that initial 
route into reading for a lot of people. You've mentioned CPD library, you've mentioned getting stuff cheap on eBay. Yeah, not being afraid to get second editions of things that are into five editions is a pretty good idea if you're on a budget. There are great books out there that you can pick up for three or four quid when the the, the most recent edition is 15 or 20 quid. And why not um, if, 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 if you're strapped for cash? I love the idea of little, little and often. Getting people to re recommend books and papers to each other is obviously an important thing. But yeah, I think that covers all the bases. I think you, I, li I liked the summary of things that you gave there. And I hope me adding a few bits and pieces on top hasn't muddied the waters too much. No, not at all. I think in some schools, they will have some sort of celebration built into their inside days where people are given the opportunity to share what they've learned over a given year. And I've never really experimented it, you know, outside of conversations during planning meetings and things. But I think, you know, that, that could potentially have some value. And though I think you've hit the nail on the head, if teachers are too busy, if they've got too much bureaucracy, too much red tape, you know, dragging them down, they're not going to engage at all, are they? So I think, you know, as school leaders, I think our priority is to make sure our teachers do have the time. And I think even as teachers, when we're getting a feel for a school, ask them, you know, what do you do here with, with, with regards to professional reading? Because, you know, if we ask those kinds of questions, then we'll soon get an idea of schools that we want to work in, you know, or schools that are going to be open to developing their teachers in the way they should be developed. Yeah, so I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. I can, I can, you know, as passionate as I am, I'm never going to complain about my colleagues who don't read because everyone has their reasons. And quite often that reason is the, the weight, that workload. Um, and I know we're going to talk about workload in the near future and um, that workload has, you know, um, and I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a massive shame. So then I think that, that leads us on to probably our final question. Do teachers really have to read? Well, given everything we've said so far, it would be a bit of a shock if I now turned and said, nah, not really. So <laughs> obviously the answer is yes, but it is more complicated than just an outright statement of, oh yeah, teachers must read. I think it's totally possible, A, for a teacher to be pretty good at their job, adequate, if not, you know, possibly even going to be an excellent at their job without ever having re read something. And I know that's going to sound really controversial. I think it's absolutely possible, but only in the same way that some kids learn to read without any instruction beyond being read to. I, t I totally accept that there will be excellent teachers out there who have never read anything. But I will say that those excellent teachers would have been even more excellent had they opened themselves up to the accumulated wisdom of the profession. But reading isn't the only way. Audiobooks are, you can argue that's still reading, but I've, lots of people would say, no, it's not. So yeah, if, if you don't regard that as reading, then yet yeah, that's an equally valid way to, to take on information. Podcasts, 
I'm bound to say that, obviously, not necessarily this one. I like to think we offer something, but nothing like as useful as actual quality reading. But there are podcasts out there, I'm sure, that offer something really, really valuable. Um, videos, certainly. I've, I've, some of the best professional development I've ever done involves me sitting down and watching a video where someone talks about something or demonstrates something. That all said... In almost all circumstances, when I think back to videos I've watched and uh, audiobooks that I've engaged with, in most cases, it would have been more efficient for me to read a book. But beyond that, as we've talked earlier, this idea of being able to take notes, the idea of having something physical, a physical reminder. I mean, there are certain books where I can see the cover of it and, and it reminds me of things that are contained within the book. And maybe that isn't the case quite so much if I listen to the audiobook. In short, the key thing is that we are undertaking professional development. How you undertake that professional development isn't necessarily as important as the fact that you are doing it. But that said, on the assumption that you are a fluent reader, reading is very often the most efficient way to deal with um, professional development and the way to enjoy it most. Would you add anything to that? Nothing new, but maybe some, I don't know if embellishment is the right word, um, but uh, just as an aside, I listen to audiobooks on 1.7, so it's almost double speed, and um, not, not for any reason other than it feels too slow when the, you know, because obviously there's a performance element, and then there's the information element, and I often find the gaps that are left just aren't natural to what how I read in my head, and um, yeah, so I, I quite like that, and um, and if I'm going into, and we talked about weighty topics at the start, I will often go to YouTube first. And, um, you know, and I think over the course of these episodes, people are going to, it's going to become my diary about my studies, but essentially looking at critical theory, not really sure much about it. So I went and I searched for the Frankfurt School on YouTube. And then there was a 20 minute video. And I watched that over a couple of lunch times, you know, lunch takes about five minutes, but over four days, I had a, a general idea of at least what I was about to begin reading was coming from and sort of the historical stuff behind it. So we finish with a question from social media. Um, and this is one that actually you and Neil Almond were really quick to answer at the time, but I think it's one that a lot of people might ask. Um, and it was along the lines of people are really enjoying the recommended reading that they're hearing the podcast. And um, but it's often generic pedagogy or mathematics orientated, you know, probably because of my involvement um, and people tailoring their answers and recommendations to my interests. But where would someone start if they wanted to engage with the research on reading and guided reading in particular? And I think there's no better person to answer that question than you, Chris. So where would you start? In terms of reading research, in particular guided reading, I would start with a paper I've already recommended a few times called Ending the Reading Wars by Castles, Russell and Nation. I don't agree with every single thing that's written in there, but given what we've talked about today, that's not the end of the world. It's still an excellent overview of the reading research. In terms of reading research generally, I'd also check out the blogs of The Reading Ape, who can be found on Twitter. Lastly, I would certainly recommend the blogs of a chap I've already recommended called 
Timothy Shanahan. His website, Shanahan on Literacy, has a great deal of brilliant information, including excellent blogs. Most importantly, thinking about the question you asked, he has a blog called something like, Should Reading Be Taught as a Whole Class or Small Group, where he looks at the evidence into reading instruction in particular. He basically denotes that there isn't a huge amount that actually directly compares the two, but looks at the actual justifications for small group instruction, which tend to, tends to relate to finding texts that match uh, a group of children's reading level precisely and then effectively differentiating in this way across a class and he shows that the reading research behind this isn't really existent never mind robust so yeah that was that's what i would suggest look for ending the reading wars by castles russell and nation the blogs of the reading ape and the blogs of timothy shanahan in particular those that relate to leveled reading excellent that, that, that's beautifully cyclical we end as we began with Chris dismantling some <laughs> reading research. <laughs> Couldn't ask for more than that. Um, so all that's left to say is thank you very much, Chris, for joining me again this week. Thank you, Kieran. We'll be back same time next week. Until then, thank you very much for listening.